Let me ask you to turn now to the book of Philippians. Philippians is packed with gold nuggets of biblical truth, and so we are taking it slowly because we do not want to miss out on many of the rich verses that Paul packs into this four-chapter book. We're going to cover just a couple of verses this morning, although I'm going to read all the way from verse 27 to verse 30. It's, it's one long paragraph, one long sentence, and yet it's, it's so packed tightly uh, that we wanted to break it into two messages. So I'm going to do the first message this morning, and then we'll have our Easter Sunday message next week, and then we'll finish the rest of the passage the Sunday after Easter. So, But let's read the whole passage, beginning in verse 27 of chapter 1 in Philippians. Today we'll cover verses 27 and 28. This is God's authoritative, personal word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The Lord bless the preaching of his word. Verse 27 in Philippians is, is very, very important for this reason. I don't think it's the most important verse. I would give that pride of place to Paul's statement, for me to live is Christ. I think that's the overarching theme of Corinthians, if you wanted to narrow it down to a single verse. But 27 is important because it's the first direct command in the book. And in some ways, it is the overarching command and category of the remainder of the book. So for the rest of the book, Paul, one way you could describe it is he's, he's sort of describing what he means by verse 27. To live worthy of the gospel is another way for Paul of saying, for me to live as Christ. In this case, he's commanding the Philippians, your lives must Honor must reflect glory on the good news of Jesus Christ. And this opening paragraph begins the application of that command by talking about courage in the face of opposition. So the way the structure of this passage breaks down, there's this overarching command, our call in Christ. And then he begins to describe the application of our courage for Christ, and you see that in the following verses. And then he provides some theological explanation in verses 29 and 30, which we'll cover in two weeks, our suffering for Christ. So there's this overarching call for Christ. Then there's a description of how we apply that call in opposition, our courage for Christ, and then what we'll cover in a couple of weeks, our suffering for Christ. It all flows from this command, live worthy of the gospel. That's how the structure of the passage breaks down. Yesterday, when my, 
my wife and, and family and I were, were driving in the car. My wife has found a, a history of, of John Bunyan uh, and an audio version that we can listen to in the car. She's always finding these great stories about church history and, and Christian uh, stories and so forth that the kids can listen to. And, and we were listening to the story of John Bunyan. If you're not familiar with Bunyan, uh, he was a, a 16th century, or 1600s rather, 17th century uh, pastor, preacher. He was imprisoned because he preached in the open air and the Church of England uh, did not believe that was right for him to do so. He did not preach as a, as a minister of the Church of England. Uh, he was an independent minister. I can only imagine what they would have said about us preaching in a, in a school building. But they didn't want him preaching in the open air, and so they arrested him without a formal charge, and they put him in prison. Well, at some point during his prison sentence, uh, he was told, you, you can go free if you will promise to stop preaching the gospel. If you will stop preaching, we will let you free. And this was a difficult decision. John Bunyan's first wife had died. Uh, he had four children. One was blind. He remarried. And his second wife was faithfully caring for these stepchildren while John was in prison, trying to provide for the family by making shoelaces and writing books and doing whatever he could. The church also was faithful in, in providing and helping uh, for this woman who was caring for these children. But he was, he was presented this question, and you can imagine it was a difficult one with four kids at home. If you'll just stop preaching the gospel, you can be released from jail. His answer became famous. His answer was, if I am freed today, I will preach tomorrow. If I am freed today, I will preach tomorrow. I think that John Bunyan understood Philippians 1.27. I think he understood it very, very well. I think he had grasped and absorbed Paul's example in the first half of chapter 1, and then he absorbed the command of 27 through 30. If I am freed today, I will preach tomorrow. He was determined. He was determined to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was his particular calling. But more importantly, to be worthy of that gospel in his everyday life. That's what Paul is getting to in this command. And then the application of that command in courage in the face of opposition. John Bunyan remained in jail for 12 years. 12 years. If I am freed today, I will preach tomorrow. 12 years... He labored while the church supported and helped support his family, while he sought to do whatever he could for his children. Twelve years because he believed, Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's dive in, first of all, to this call that Paul makes, and then we'll look at the courage that reflects that worthiness of the gospel for our second point. First of all, notice this word, only. In English, that word only could be misleading. Sometimes we use the word only almost as a transition. I'm sure you've used this. You might say something like, uh, kids, I want you to go clean up the upstairs. Uh, only don't forget about the one shelf. It's sort of an extra afterthought, additional thing. Hey, uh, don't, don't forget about this. Uh, make sure you, you get dinner. And, oh, oh, only don't, don't forget about the, 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 the Tostitos. You, you kind of throw it in at the end, and you could think of this that way. You could think of the word only the way we sometimes use it in English, but that's not the way it's meant in the Greek. In the Greek, it is emphatic, and we might get a better sense if, if it said exclusively. 
completely, without exception. It's this bold exclamation point of exclusivity at the beginning of the first command in Philippians. Only you have one comprehensive command for your life, and it is this. Only worthy of the gospel live your life. The one overarching mandate for the Christian is to live worthy to do honor to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to reflect glory on that gospel only, without exception, no exceptions allowed. Only worthy of the gospel, live your life. This word, uh, manner of life, they're trying to describe these words in in English. It, It has to do with citizenship in a country. So Paul's sort of playing on words. It's what you might say is only as a citizen of the gospel live your life. It's as though Paul is saying you have been brought into a totally different kind of loyalty. You have been made a citizen of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So much so that your actions should reflect that citizenship. You should act like a citizen of the gospel. I have friends even in this church who have come from other countries and, and when I first met them, I noticed immediately their wonderful accent, that I, I so enjoy accents from around the world, and, and hearing them speak in English is always a reminder that it's only in this country that we speak only one language, everywhere else speaks multiple languages, but here we speak one language mostly, uh, but you hear accents in English from around the world, and, and it's, it's, it's wonderful, but then I hear when they go back home, they're informed by their friends, oh man, you're, you're totally losing your accent. You're talking much more like an American. It's always like negative when they said, you're talking much more like an American. Well, you know, we, we are natives of the gospel. We are natives of the good news of Jesus Christ. That, that should be our perpetual accent. We're not to take on the accent of the world around us. We to have the, the permanent turn of phrase accent citizenship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what we're to live worthy of. That is our loyalty. That is our underlying allegiance. That's our comprehensive duty. Only, exclusively, without exception, let your manner of life, your citizenship, be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the overarching call. Very, very important. Now, brothers and sisters, we we cannot live worthy of the gospel, especially with courage in the face of opposition, if we are not immersed in the gospel and very uh, faithful to remember and review and focus on it. Listen, listen, you don't, you don't love something that you don't think about very much. You don't meditate on something or honor something that is not regularly on your mind. You don't forget about the thing that is of most importance to you. We are not going to stand in honor for the gospel if the gospel is rarely on our minds. So let me first make this application when it comes to this call, live worthy of the gospel. Is the good news of Jesus Christ consistently on our minds? Is it consistently on our minds? Is it on your mind when you pray, for example? Do you start your prayers with a reminder of the good news of Jesus Christ? Let's remember what that good news is. The the good news that we're to live worthy of, the one overarching command of our life, 
is the good news that there was God the Son in heaven with God the Father and God the Spirit, a triune God, and they planned to rescue sinful humanity. And so God the Son took on flesh permanently, came and lived a righteous life. He obeyed perfectly, never more so than what we see in the the unfolding events of this Passion Week, where he says on Thursday in the garden, not my will but yours be done, and he goes all the way to the cross and declares at the end, it is finished. There was a righteous obedience that was necessary before God, and there was a, a man who fulfilled that righteousness all the way to the end. And that's good news for us only because... Jesus offers himself as our representative. Listen, there might be great world leaders in various countries around the world. It, it, it doesn't do much good for a country to know that somewhere else in the world there's a great world leader. Because it doesn't, it doesn't affect you at all. They, they don't represent you. Their decisions for, for peace or justice ha- have no effect on you. But it's very different if a leader who represents you is just and righteous and honorable. And there's never been a leader more closely representing his people than Jesus Christ. So the good news is not so much that Jesus was righteous as that in his righteousness he represents us. He represents his people. His righteousness stands in for us. And he wasn't just righteous. He was also willing to suffer for our unrighteousness. Listen, when Paul says the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to understand what that means if we're going to live worthy of it. Otherwise, it's like a surprise test that nobody knew about before it happens. What is this gospel we're to live worthy of? It's that Jesus lived righteously in place of his people since they had not, and then he died unjustly paying for their sins so they would not have to. That is the good news of the gospel we're to live worthy of. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news about Jesus, accomplished by him. His righteous life, his death as a substitute, paying for our sins, paying for your sins, and then his resurrection proving that what he had done was fully complete in the sight of God. And so that all that belong to him now have hope where they were before hopeless. They now have a future where before they had only condemnation. This is the gospel that we are to live worthy of. It helps to understand that. It helps us understand the command. Live worthy of the gospel cannot mean uh, add to the gospel of your salvation that would imply a misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what he did. It, it means to reflect in your loyalty to the gospel that you believe it to be true and more valuable than anything else in your life. Worthy of the gospel. We will not live worthy of the gospel, especially in the face of opposition, if we don't meditate on it to the point of absorbing it and calling it our own. This is my native language. Grace, the grace of Jesus. One very practical application. How can we know this gospel so that we can live worthy of it? Are gospel verses your top priority to memorize and to study in your regular daily devotional life? 
have you built up a storehouse of gospel verses that can bring the succinct message of the gospel home to you in a moment of need where you're called to live worthy of it? Now, now, any verse in the Scriptures is worth meditating on, but I would say especially gospel verses. You need a storehouse of gospel verses. If you're to live worthy, exclusively worthy of the gospel, it's good to have the gospel in succinct form pressed into your mind. So verses like Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In him we have obtained access by faith. These these are verses that, that press the reality of the good news of Jesus Christ home into our hearts. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. These are gospel verses that press into our mind what this gospel is that we're to live worthy of. Our call in life is to reflect honor on the gospel so that in our conviction we trust his forgiveness in our temptation we cling to our union with him in our doubts we look to his promises all all of all of the good news that jesus accomplished in his cross and resurrection should inform everything from making a salad to operating on your taxes to serving your neighbor to training your children to working in your marriage these gospel truths that you've been reconciled from death to life from condemnation to forgiveness from hopelessness to a future should define every little moment of life so that only worthy of the gospel, as a gospel citizen, you live your life. This is what Paul means. This is what he's going to unfold the remainder of the letter. It means humility. It means servanthood. It means the rejection of legalism. It means rejoicing in suffering. It means generosity. He's going to unfold that the rest of the letter, but it all comes back to this idea. The gospel has made you a citizen of the Christ country. And in that country, people act, speak, think, and feel a certain way. We are called to gospel worthiness. And the first application that Paul makes, the application he immediately runs to, is our courage for Christ. That's the second point that we'll hit this morning. Our courage for Christ. Look down at your Bibles. He, he, he begins to define the effect of of a gospel-worthy lifestyle and, and how resounding that effect should be. Only let your manner of life, exclusively let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that, here's how resounding this should be, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. I would summarize this, this whole application as courage for Christ. He describes it positively and negatively, and then he indicates what it says about the future. He describes it positively, especially in terms of of unity. 
Paul says, so profound should be your allegiance to the gospel that the effect of it I should hear about even if I'm not with you. I expect to hear reports of your allegiance to the gospel of Jesus Christ, your unshaken commitment to it, even if I'm at a distance and I can't come near to your church or watch you in person. This is a valuable lesson for us. What Paul is saying is you shouldn't only be about the gospel when the person you respect and crave their opinion is nearby. Isn't that a, isn't that a sobering and, and, and motivating phrase? You shouldn't only love talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ or centering on grace when, you know, this person who loves Jesus and will appreciate those things is nearby. You, you should be worthy of it even when they're not nearby. It's not just at the community group meeting that you say, well, I'm really affected by, by the gospel of Jesus. No, it, it's, it's in other moments. It's with family that doesn't believe in Jesus. It's, it's with neighbors who, who think Jesus is, is just some nice teacher. It's, it's when you're struggling with your children. It's when you're struggling in your marriage. It's, it's when I'm tempted to selfishness. Those are the moments, whether someone is watching me or not, that I should live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's, there's no moment in which we should let ourselves off of this responsibility. This is, this is the, the all-encompassing calling. And, and in particular, Paul is concerned that their courage should be a community courage. Notice the accent here on unity. He wants to hear of them that they are standing firm. The Philippians were surrounded by what's been called the emperor cult, where Caesar was literally called Kyrios. He was called Lord which made it a real problem for Christians who said that Jesus is the only Lord. <laughs> real challenge to be surrounded by this culture. They were certainly surrounded by other, other pagan ideas and thinking worldliness. They're surrounded by things that dishonor the gospel, and that's also true of us. We're not surrounded by an emperor cult, but we are often surrounded by other kinds of worldliness that, that, that bombard our thinking about gospel priority every day. We're surrounded by a fame cult, for example. People in our part of the world love fame. They love notoriety. They love Instagram <laughs> likes. They love Facebook posts. They, they, they love to be known and seen. Christians are not called to love being known and seen. They're called to love that people would come to know and see Jesus. We're, we're, we're surrounded by a comfort cult that, that craves physical comfort above anything else. We're, we're surrounded by a materialism cult. We're surrounded by all kinds of, of cults that bombard us with alternatives to living worthy of a crucified Savior who has invited us to an eternal kingdom who has not called us to love and live for this world. We're surrounded by those cults. So are the Philippians. And Paul says, I want you to stand firm. I want you to stand firm in the face of these attacks, these seductions that are all around you. I want you to re reject these seductions, but I want you to do that together. You're not meant to do that separately or in some isolated way. You're supposed to do that together. He wants to hear of them that they're standing firm how? In one spirit... With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul does not intend Christians 
to stand against this world on their own. He doesn't anticipate them weathering the winds of this culture that threaten to tear out the heart of their faith, that put other ideas at the forefront, ideas of, of, of popularity and appearance and, and pleasure. He, he, he intends them to stand arm in arm linked with other Christians standing against those winds. Last year, my family and I went to California. We, we were taken, it was basically given to us. We were taken to California. I, I had never been uh, to where the Redwoods are, at least that I can remember uh, in my life. And we were able to go. And so while we were in that part of the country, uh, we, we just started thinking about the Redwoods and, and what they're like. And, and, and we were in a, a slightly different part of, of California. We, we didn't get to actually go down and see them, but we were thinking about them. And there's these other massive trees there. So we're just thinking about trees and big trees and how they grow. And how tall are those redwoods? And what are they, what are they like? They grow hundreds of feet in the air. And one of the things we found was fascinating. The root system of these trees, which they are hundreds of feet. I mean, they are massive, massive trees. Around, the amount of weight that is present in these trees is, is unthinkable. The root system is not very deep at all, which shocked us. We couldn't understand, how do these trees, I mean, when there's a storm, I mean, if you know anything about leverage, I mean, that amount of weight, how do they stay upright? It's incredible, that much weight, just on, on, the, on the surface of the ground with not a real big root system. Well, we found out these trees grow in groves, And so the roots of one tree are entwined with the roots of another tree. They're all tangled up together. And so it is literally the case that these massive trees are linked in such a way that each one is held in place by all of the others. Now that's amazing. Each tree is is held in place not by means of its own strength. Now they all have a part to play in that strength. They do have roots. But the strength of each tree is helped and aided and reinforced by the strength of every other tree. Or you could say the weakness of each tree contributes to the weakness of every other tree. And I thought that's exactly what Paul is describing here. He's saying this courageous Life for the worthiness of the gospel, standing for the gospel, is meant to be a community project. It's a community courage. It's something we do together. It's something we love together. It's something we stand for together, where we hold up our brothers and sisters where they are tempted, and they hold us up where we are tempted. And as Paul would say in Ephesians, we speak the truth in love to each other such that we continue to grow and to stand against the winds of a culture that is pressing against the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Now that motivates things like why we come on a Sunday morning or to community group or to some gathering of fellowship for believers. Because in a stormy culture like ours, trees can't take a lot of days off or they weaken the rest of the grove. Christians are necessary to the standing of the church and the standing of the church is meant to reflect on the glory of the gospel. Let me put it this way. Your encouragement, support of your fellow Christian in the ordinary practices of life is God's means of showing the worthiness of Jesus Christ and his gospel.
When you speak in love, encourage, help, serve, support, you know what you're doing? You're God's means of helping his church stand in such a way that the world will hear of the worthiness of the gospel. This is not merely an issue of attending a, a church that you like a little better than some other church and, and thinking of, of church community as something that, that you know, you, you, you like certain elements of, of parts of the community. And I don't like other elements of parts of the community, but I kind of attend what I like, don't attend what I don't like. No, there, there's something spiritual going on here. There's something cosmic. There's something of a, a battle being waged. Paul says the phrase is striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, we, we don't strive with, with physical weapons. We strive with loyalty of heart and passion and emotion and priorities and self-control and, and love and servanthood and, and, and sacrifice and generosity. That's, that's the weapons of our warfare. We strive with evangelism and community and encouragement and Bible studies and listening to messages and songs that lift up his name. We, we strive with, with holding up our weak brothers and sisters in their suffering and encouraging those who are called to witness in other parts of the world. We, we strive with weapons of order ordinary church life, and in that church life, we are standing together against the winds of a culture that blow against Jesus every day, and we are declaring that together we stand for Jesus. This is a, a community of courage, and you notice he then flips it, as he often does, and talks about what we are not to be. We are not to be frightened in anything by our opponents. Oh, isn't that a soul-stirring command? Don't be frightened by anything in your opponents. By nothing. And isn't it more meaningful hearing that from someone who's in prison? He's already faced the worst that you could possibly face. And he's willing even to go beyond that and die. Isn't it more meaningful to hear from a person who has actually suffered deeply that Christ is enough for them? You saints who are suffering and have suffered in this church, I want to thank you as a pastor and as a member of this church. You convince me that Jesus is enough if I were to face the suffering that I might be tempted to be afraid of. Because when you go through suffering, you continue to have joy, and that helps me to not be afraid of that suffering coming to me someday. We are not to be frightened by anything in our opponents. That means, let's be real realistic, that means we are not afraid of a sexual revolution in this country. We're not afraid of that. We're not afraid of Christian policies being shouted down in the social media world. We're not afraid of that. It's not that we want that to happen or that we wouldn't do our best to make our voice heard, certainly, but we're not afraid of that happening. We're not, we're not afraid of, let's say, uh, ungodly or secular-minded people being elected to office. We're not afraid of that. I hope it doesn't happen, but we're not afraid of it if it does. We're not afraid of people that hate Jesus having money and influence. We're not afraid of that. We're not afraid of, of certain choices of parenting that we believe we're called to make in obedience to Scripture. Being outlawed. We're not afraid of that. We're not afraid of Christian lifestyle 
and convictions excluding people from certain careers like medicine because of immoral laws that go up in various places in the country. We're not afraid of that. Not frightened in anything. In anything by your opponents. Worthiness of the gospel requires a fearless courage. A community courage, we're not alone, but a fearless courage. Our fear of the culture implies a suspicion of the worthiness of the gospel. A fear of the culture implies a a suspicion, maybe a small suspicion, but a suspicion of the worthiness of the gospel. We must silence that suspicion and speak to our own souls and say, no, I will not be afraid of anything put forward by my opponents and... This fearlessness is eternally valuable because it reveals our eternal destination. Look what Paul says next. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, there are many ways a person can know they're a Christian. There are many ways. First and foremost, that they confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. They, they, they can know they are a Christian if they genuinely believe and confess that Jesus is their Savior. But the Bible doesn't stop there. It also provides other means of assurance. And one means of assurance in this passage is those who are willing to stand fearlessly for Christ— And this doesn't just mean standing on a street corner and doing street evangelism. That is wonderful, and and that would be a wonderful way of declaring our, our love for Jesus. But this is also just talking about a person who unashamedly will live a Christian life following Jesus, listening to his word, loving his people, representing him as they have opportunity. That person who refuses to be intimidated by a culture who downplays Christianity as one among many spiritualities, that kind of fearlessness, that fearlessness, what it is, is an indication of a future salvation and vindication from God. Paul's saying the same thing about them that he said about himself in verse 19, he, he's saying, look, look, this is going to turn out, the end of all of this suffering and imprisonment and everything, you know what's going to happen? I am going to be rescued and brought into a vindication. The world will turn right side up. The opponents who seem powerful will seem weak, and their end, this is a sign to them of their destruction. Whether they perceive it or not, the fearlessness of the church in the face of the culture is a sign of the end of all things. God intends that when Jesus comes back, he will be able to point to the fearlessness of the church and the opposition of the world as a indicator of how the world will end. We are a preview of the end. So let's be a good preview. You are a preview of the end. You're supposed to indicate what really will last. I'm supposed to indicate what really is terrifying 
and what really isn't. I'm supposed to reveal what really matters and what really doesn't. I'm supposed to showcase in my life and in my community boldness. What will happen when Jesus returns? That should be evident in the church. That means that cultural ideas of morality, which might intimidate us, should not intimidate us. Because in the end, God's word will be shown to be the true justice and everything else will be shown to be condemned. Listen, we are called to be a preview of the end of all things. This is a sign to them. Their opposition to Christ is a sign that they will finally be destroyed. And our allegiance to Christ without fear is a sign of our ultimate salvation. Every time John Bunyan faced that temptation of whether he should stop preaching so that he could get out of jail, every time he said, no, I will not be intimidated by ongoing suffering, I will continue to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what it was a sign of? It was a sign of his ultimate salvation. It was an indication of the end of all things. It was a preview of the coming day of the Lord. Every time you stand up for Jesus on Facebook and somebody defriends you, it's a really, really small suffering, but it's a small sign of the end of all things. Every time you refuse to laugh at crude humor and you face the relational repercussions of that, if you're a teenager or a single especially, you know what that is? That's a sign of the end of all things. If you faced a moment in your job where living worthy of the gospel meant saying no to immoral practices, it is a sign of the end of all things. And if, as a church, we face a moment where we will have to be bold in the face of persecution... And make no doubt that persecution will, in the first place, divide true Christians from falsely professing Christians. That is happening right now in this country. The Bible is on trial in professing Christians in America. And if we stand for the authority of God's word and the gospel that word proclaims, we will in all likelihood be smaller and less culturally potent than others. And yet, the opposition to Jesus Christ is merely a preview of condemnation, and the standing for Jesus Christ is a preview for final vindication. And so what Paul is saying is, live worthy of the gospel. The end is coming quickly. Be an accurate preview of that end. Live together. Stand together. Stand united, side by side. Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. I'm writing this from jail. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of dying. Don't be afraid of a smaller lifestyle. Don't be afraid of less influence. Don't be afraid of mockery. Don't be afraid of being called behind the times or not enlightened. Don't be afraid of the crude humor of late night culture. Don't be afraid of that because the end is coming. And the gospel is all that will be honored on that day. Live worthy of the gospel. Live worthy of the gospel. Of the gospel. One of the things that John Bunyan did, as many of you would know, when he was in prison, was write The Pilgrim's Progress, an allegory about the Christian life. 
If you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it to you. He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. And and one of the fantastic moments in that story takes place when Christian, one pilgrim, and faithful make their way to Vanity Fair. And Vanity Fair is, is filled with all manner of wickedness and merchants calling out for immoral activities and purchases. And, and Christian and faithful are extremely odd and unusual. They, they will not look. They will not listen. They refuse to be enticed. They go through the town. And they, they give odd answers when people ask them, what would you like to buy? They say, we buy the truth. And people are angry in the fair because they're not enjoying and, and engaging. And actually, they, they, they arrest them even though they've, they've done nothing to harm anyone else, but they, they will not engage, and they keep talking about otherworldly kinds of things. And so they put them in prison, and they put them before this, this mock kangaroo trial. They accuse them of all sorts of things, and in the end, faithful is martyred. Bunyan says, they put him to as cruel a death as could be imagined. But, but Christian is enabled to be aware that this for faithful is merely the shortest trip to the celestial city. And as faithful is dying, there's a vision in the book of a a chariot waiting for him and carrying him swiftly to the golden gates. And, And Christian says, sing, faithful. Sing, faithful. Because he, he knows you have, you have triumphed. You have succeeded. You have not loved your life unto death. You have not been afraid of their mockery. You have not loved your comfort more than anything else. Sing, faithful. I think if, if Paul could speak one word, it would be, you have lived worthy of the gospel. You have not been frightened in anything by your opponents. You have stood side by side with your brothers and sisters. Only worthy of the gospel, you have lived your life. Sing, faithful. The shortest road to heaven is yours. Brothers and sisters, this gospel we have received and been saved by, this Savior is worthy of a fearless courage. Do not be afraid. It does not mean we won't suffer. It does mean that when we suffer, we can honor the glory of the one who suffered for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for setting an example for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for walking silently to the cross, facing all of the mockery and wrath that we deserved. So that now, Lord, we have nothing but your favor and your love. Lord, we rejoice in that gift. Lord, please help us not to be afraid. Lord, whatever little things we're afraid of or big things, Lord, help us to reject those fears. And please help us also, Lord, to stand united for this gospel. 
Help us to want to see our brothers and sisters to make it faithful to the end. Help us to desire that and to throw ourselves into the task of holding up their arms. Help us to live worthy of this good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.